0: Amen, amen. Well, let's go to the scriptures uh, this afternoon, and we want to look today at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, right near the end of your Bible. 1 John chapter 4, we'll start at verse 7, and we're going to go through to verse 21. So, I want to do what we usually do. If we can stand up together, uh, and we're going to read the scripture together. If you don't have it yet, that's okay. It's on the board, so you can just check it out on the board. Um, but we want to read 1 John chapter 4 together. I'll help you start out, and then you can bring it the rest of the way home. Let's read. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Amen, amen. There's a lot of love in that passage, right or wrong? There's a lot in this passage. Let's pray. Father God, we ask that you would meet us at this moment and at this time. Let the power of your word and the moving of your Holy Spirit in the hearts of your people uh, convict us, encourage us. And transform us, that we might live and love more like you. Be with us in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Um, I had looked at a portion of this passage about a month ago, just a small portion of it. I was excited to preach a message, to put together a message on that small portion of this passage. I pretty much had my outline for it. I had all this stuff in mind from the very beginning. And then I said, well, I just need to study this passage a little bit and look at it. And in the course of time, my neat little nice message got blown up in my face. Uh, And uh, God began to step all over the toes on both of my feet as I studied what it was that he was communicating through this little letter of 1 John. Um, It is a powerful, powerful letter. The uh, title for today's sermon is Necessary Love. Necessary Love. Uh, We we see in the verses that we're gonna look at in a few minutes the necessity uh, of God's love at work for the believer, his, work, his love at work in the believer, and then as well, his love at work through the believer. All three of these are absolutely necessary. You can't have two of them or one of them. All three are necessary. And we'll look at that as we look at the passage. Now, I call this necessary love. Necessary is a word, the definition is being essential or indispensable, uh, something, uh, if we could just put it in, in layman's terms, something that you cannot possibly do without, that is something that is necessary. So we would all say that Air and oxygen is necessary. Can I get an amen on that? Okay, y'all know that air is necessary. Water is necessary. You can go out without it for a little while, but if you don't have access to water over time, you won't live. You need water to replenish your body. You can't live without it. These are necessary things. Some of you in this room right now think that Netflix is necessary, but I'm here to tell you along with the Holy Ghost. It is not necessary. It may be nice, but it's not necessary. But the love of God towards you, in you, and through you is necessary. All of those things, all of those aspects, it is necessary that you understand this, this love of God uh, in you, through you, and, and and for you. So all of these things are important. Well, as before we get to the text, I want to share... Uh, A story of an uncommon and incredible act of love, and some of you have probably seen this. It was all over social media. This is months ago, maybe six months ago, Um, and it was everywhere. But it's a story of two men. The first man, a young black man, he was in his early 20s in 2005, named Jamil McGee, and then a young white man who was also in his early 20s in 2005 named Andrew Collins. They were in the city of, uh, what's the name of the city? Benton Har- Harbor, Michigan, in 2005, and Jamil McGee was going about his day like a regular day. And uh, Andrew Collins was a police officer there. Uh, A white police officer and he woke up that day and he says now that he woke up that day with this on his mind I'm gonna arrest somebody for drugs today Like not if I meet someone who is uh, doing some dirty business, but I'm no matter what happens I'm gonna make an arrest today uh, For someone with drugs and it just happens that Jamil McGee was in the wrong place at the wrong time no drugs on him wasn't involved in the drug trade at all, but uh, Collins singled him out and framed him and wrote false reports and arrested him and made sure that he actually got not only arrested but convicted, and he was sentenced, Jamil McGee was, to 10 years in prison for possession with uh, intent to distribute uh, drugs. Well, um, some years later, while uh, McGee was in in prison, uh, it came out that Collins had not only put him in prison uh, by lying and and false reports and planting drugs, but he had done that to others as well. And uh, justice had its day with uh, Andrew Collins as well. McGee talks about the fact that when he was in prison, the thing that totally occupied his mind that was uh, that he couldn't get off of his mind was when I get out of here I'm gonna find that guy and, and in his words I'm gonna hurt him I'm gonna find him I'm, I'm gonna hurt him can you like feel where that would be coming from I know I can like he put me in jail I had nothing to do with any of this I'm in prison for 10 years and, and McGee said I had lost everything in my life well something happened while uh, Jamil McGee was in prison he started reading a book a book like this book. He started reading the Bible, and God began to do a powerful, powerful work in his life, transformed everything about his life. He was converted to Christ and became a Christian, and God began to rewire even the way he thought about everything in his life, and even to see God's hand at work, even in the fact that he was in prison. Now, this didn't mean that it was okay and it was cool, That uh, the officer did this to him, but he came to reckon with God that, okay, God, you have some reason for all of this. Well, um, last year, uh, after Collins had gotten out of prison, they found themselves working together in the same restaurant back in Michigan. It was a Christian ministry. The name of the restaurant is Mosaic. And they found themselves working in the same restaurant. And so uh, Jamil McGee went to Collins, and he confronted him about what had happened. He said, we got to deal with this thing. And uh, Collins said, I don't have any reason for what I did. I don't have any good excuse for what I did. All I know is what I did was, was wrong. And I just ask that you would, would forgive me for that. I, I, I am so, so sorry that I did that. What happened next to me is amazing. McGee immediately forgave him. Now, I know that brings up probably a lot of mixed emotions in this room, and I get that, I get that. But he forgave him, and the two have gone on to become extremely close friends, best friends. They do ministry together now. They go to different places, and they they talk about the power of Forgiveness. All of this was spurred on because of the conversion experience that Jamil McGee had. And also, Andrew Collins also had a conversion experience as well. God was at work. Now, if I be honest, I would have to tell you that I can't relate to being wronged to that degree like Jamil McGee was wrong. Some of you in this room probably can relate to that for a lot of different reasons, things that have happened to you and ways that you have been sinned against. Some of you can relate to that better than I can. I'm sure of it. But I don't want us to miss the point of this. The point in this is that uh, that Collins was offered and was given a love and a forgiveness that he could never have in a million lifetimes earned. And that is something that I can relate to. I can relate to that because the God of all history, the great and awesome God of the universe through Jesus Christ has loved me like that. He has loved me like that. Um, It is an extravagant love that God gives. Uh, In Luke chapter 15, we come across a parable uh, that is known to most of us as the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus talks about this young son and the older son, and most of you know the story of the prodigal son, but Tim Keller actually refers to this story not as the prodigal son, but as the prodigal God. And for some of us, that sounds really strange because when you hear the word prodigal, you just think, oh, that means really bad, right? But but actually, if you look at the meaning of the word prodigal, it means to be recklessly extravagant. It means to be lavish and abundant. It means to be profuse. Isn't that the type of love that God has loved you with? He loves us not by dripping and, and dropping little bits of love to say, oh, that's enough for you. I need to save some for him. Oh, I need a little over here. No, the Bible says in Romans, he poured out his love on us. He pours it out. We are drowning in the enormity and the lavishness of God's extravagant love. If you understand God at all, you understand that his love is indeed extravagant. Well, as we come to the text today in 1 John uh, chapter 4, this, this letter is a challenging and powerful letter. Many people believe that it is the, uh, one of the primary places in the New Testament where we get an idea of the assurance of our salvation. But I think if you understand the Bible at all, you see that throughout the Scripture. You don't have to just come to a verse or two here or there. But at the end of, near the end of, First John in chapter five, he says in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, the interesting thing about that in the context of this book is not that he's saying, I want you to know, but through the whole book, he's telling you how you can know. You're not going to know because you read some esoteric thing about what God did before the foundation of the world and what he's done for you and how he chose you. You're not going to read any of that in 1 John. What you're going to read and what's going to happen to you if you read through this book is God is going to put a mirror right in front of you. And he's going to show you the characteristics of a person who ought to be assured of their salvation. He's going to show you in the most practical ways what it looks like to be a person who can call themselves with assurance and confidence a child of God. So when we come to this passage here in chapter 4, we're going to learn about what it means to have this necessary love. So the question I want to ask today is why is love necessary. Why is love necessary? And there's three reasons that I want to pull out of this passage. Why is love necessary? Number one, uh, love is necessary because God's love reveals who God is. God's love reveals who God is. Let's look back at the passage, starting at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. He says, For love is from God. At the end of verse 8, he uses a phrase that he's going to repeat in verse 16. God is love. Verse 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That means he sent his son to be the offering that stands between us and the wrath of God. And God accepted the offering of his son as he poured out his wrath on him. He is the propitiation for our sins. This love comes first from God. Verse 16 says, so we've come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Again, God is love. And then in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. You see, uh, this love is necessary because God's love reveals who God is. You can't know God apart from understanding at least something of what his love is, who he is in love. Saying God is love is not all that we can say about God, but it is one thing that we must say about God. Some of you are into reformed theology. I love reformed theology. I'm crazy about that stuff. But I know in some circles of Reformed theology, we can get caught, and some of you don't know what I'm talking about. That's okay, too. Don't even worry about it. But in Reformed theological circles, many put in the center of an understanding of God, God is sovereign over all things. The sovereignty of God is what rules and reigns and abides when we understand who God is. I get that. That's cool. But... If I'm understanding God as sovereign and I'm not seeing the intrinsic connection to God as being love, then the sovereign God that I'm talking about is not the one that's in the Bible. That's a different God. Some people see uh, the idea of the glory of God as being the central uh, uh, rubric around which we should understand Scripture and the nature of God. And I get that. That's cool, too. See, it's all good to me. It's all cool. But, But if we divorce the glory of God from the way in which He has loved us, then we're missing the God of glory altogether. You see, although the Bible says the heavens reveal his glory, they do in some sense. But God's glory is most powerfully revealed, not in his creation, but in his passionate purpose to purchase a people for himself. God says, I am coming after you. And the angels are in awe of a God who would go after fallen, wormy people like you and me. Yes. Sinners shot through. But he comes after us with love. God reveals himself as love. It, it is who he is. It flows out of the deepest part of his nature. Look at verses 9 and 10 in our text today. This is towards the beginning of our text and where uh, we, we see the formation of what this love is. And without this, the rest of it won't mean anything. If you don't get this, it's not just to say that God is love. Well, tell me what that means, preacher. Look at the Bible. Verse 9 says, what does he mean? What, what does this love mean? It means this. In this is The love of God, in in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest. And and that, that word means he made it clear as day. He did that through sending his son. In other words, God said, I wasn't wasn't mumbling when I said that. I, 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 I wasn't stuttering when I said that, but I said that loud and clear. I sent my son. You want to know what love is? Look at Jesus. Look at that cross. I've made it clear what love is. The gospel is not only the proclamation of that love, but the demonstration of the love of God that reveals the deepest part of his character. We just sang this song a few minutes ago, but the hymn writer put it this way, why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Why is love necessary? It's necessary because God's love reveals who he is. But now comes the more uncomfortable part. The more uncomfortable part is this. Why is love necessary? Because your love reveals who you are. Your love reveals who you are. Let's look at the scripture again, starting at verse 7 once again beloved let us love one another for God for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God verse 8 anyone who does not love does not know God go down to verse 16 so we have come now to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And look at this, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then he makes it, if, if these things weren't clear enough, look at verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. God says this thing is clear. This thing is clear that that love is one of the identifying marks of what it means to be a child of God. So, so in, in, in this letter of 1 John, he, he really puts out three identifying marks of what it means to be a child of God. The first one is, is a test of right doctrine. Uh, he says, if anyone uh, says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he is from God, but if anyone denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, he's not from God. So there's a test of right doctrine that centers around the person and the work and believing in Jesus Christ exclusively as the way of salvation. There's a doctrinal test here. But the next test is a test not only of right doctrine or right believing, but of right living. He goes on to say uh, later in in 1 John, he says, "If, if anyone says he loves God but does not keep his commandments, he uses the same language he uses in verse 20 here. He says, he is a liar. And it says, and the truth is not in him. So so the Christian life is not only having a right confession, but is also having a life that is being transformed from the inside out. Now, that does not mean that you live sinless and perfect in this world, as this same epistle makes clear. We have an advocate with the Father. We confess our sins. But it does mean that you're a different person when Christ comes into your life it does mean that you begin to fight against sin, not only with all that is within you, but with the power of the Holy Spirit to fight sin. And it means that your life is changing. You're not the same person anymore. It's impossible to be the same and be a Christian. So those are the first two tests. But the third test, or the third aspect, is this. Right, loving. Right-loving. Now, I don't know about you, but I've experienced this in my life in the church. I've experienced some of the most right doctrinal people that I've ever met. Some of the most right-living people, at least based on their own confession of how uh, they they don't sin in any kind of way. Or it's an extremely rare event in their lives if they ever sin. Because they dress a certain way. And they walk a certain way and they talk a certain way and they tell you where they go and they tell you where they don't go. They tell you what they listen to and what they don't listen to. They are the righteous people of God. And they are some righteous folks. But, 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 but some of those folks I've met, not all of them, but some of them are the meanest, nastiest, most judgmental, harsh Unloving people that I've ever met in my life. And right here, verse 20, the scripture says, If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. See, th- these three things right believing, right, uh, right living, and, and, and then uh, right loving uh, they go together. There was a song in the 1970s called Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. Um, the lyric was, I, I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you Now don't be sad, because two out of three ain't bad now, that, that, that does not work That can't work, like I want to be with you, but I no way I'm ever going to love you, right? Same is true here, the same thing is true here Two out of three doesn't work I got my right confession. Look, my life is changing, but I don't have to love people. Or I'll just love certain people, not other people. Can I make a confession right here, right now, in front of you? When I read these verses, and particularly in verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The first thing, one of the first things I thought of was, just like the, the scribe in Luke chapter 10, I thought, well, who exactly is it talking about? Who is my brother? Does that just mean Christians? Does that? I'm starting in in Luke chapter ten. Jesus is talking with a, a scribe, and the scribe comes to him and says, "You know what is the greatest commandment?" And Jesus said. The greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus says, and the second is like unto it that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus couldn't stop at the first commandment because he knew that the only way you'd know about the reality of whether a person was following the first commandment was if they were living out the second one, love your neighbor as yourself. You can't can't separate those. Um, And so the scribe says to Jesus, Uh, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus goes on to tell him about what we call the Good Samaritan. We think Samaritan good. The first century Jew thought Samaritan, the worst kind of person in the history of the earth, is a Samaritan. And he tells him about the Good Samaritan. That's your neighbor. Well, I'm reading this verse, and I'm asking, just like that scribe in Luke 10, Well, who is my brother? Let me, let me look at the Greek real quick on here. Let me, let me look deep into this. Who is my brother? Aha, brother, it doesn't say anything about my sister. Okay, so I don't have to love my sisters. Praise God. It doesn't say anything about my cousins. Okay, praise God, it doesn't say anything. You know, so, but, but if I'll be honest, when I look at this, part of me wants to parse words and look at things and say, who can I exclude from this list? Because there are certainly people in my life that I don't feel like loving. Nothing in me feels like loving that person. And even people I love a lot, there are times <laughs> when love is not just bubbling over in my soul. It's not, let me tell you something that happened to me last night. We were driving back from uh, Maryland had a nice time with some of my family down in Maryland. We were driving back. We got home. Uh, we had dropped off some people. And so now it's just me and my wife, and she's being real quiet in the car. She's usually not so quiet. And so I, I start start talking about a couple things. I get no answer at all. She's just like looking forward. And then I say, OK, I'm just talking about this stuff. Let me make a, re- a real personal observation about a conversation that I saw her having. And so I make this personal, deep observation, and she's just looking straight forward. And we had gotten to the house, we were stopped in front of the house, and I looked at her, and I'm asking her this question, and she's just staring at me, saying nothing. And I know I gotta preach about love tomorrow. I'm not feeling it right now. Like, what are you doing to me right now? This is getting... (laughs) On my very last nerve, I'm trying to make some conversation. You're my wife, I love you. But right now, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Holy Spirit's like, chill, Larry. You don't know what's going on. You know what I found out later on? I didn't even see it. She had headphones on. She was listening to music. thought I knew that and was doing what I'll do sometimes. So when I see somebody like that, I'll just start moving my mouth, acting like I'm talking and I'm not. She told me that later on. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I thank God for the Holy Spirit. that, and, and it's probably a good thing I was preaching this message today because I, 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 just, I just took it. I just took it that last night. Um, and we had to talk a little bit later on. Um, <laughs> God calls us to love all kind of folk. We want to figure out who we can get out of loving. Look at Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 43. I'm just going to read a couple of these verses. But he says in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says these words in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Look at verse 45, challenging verse so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says, you need to love not just your friends. You don't just need to love your, your neighbors and those who can do something for you, but I'm calling you to love even your enemies. I'm, praying, I'm calling you to pray for those who persecute you. I am calling you to do this because this will identify you as sons of your Father who is in heaven. It's a heavy word. I know as I was studying through this, I got my toes all stepped on by the Holy Ghost. Because as you look at that, you begin to think, well, who am I called to love? Certainly not just those that we're comfortable with loving, but those who, are we, who we are extremely uncomfortable with loving. So we're called to love difficult people. We're called to love unloving people. We're called to love contrary people. We're called to love hateful and spiteful people. We're called to love close family members who know how to get on our last nerve and drive us up a wall and do that on a consistent basis. We're called to love people at work who treat us like dirt and treat other people like garbage. We're called to love people that cannot bless you or help you in any way, shape, or form. You pour out love, and you know you're never going to get any return on it. You're called to love. Christians are people who are marked, the scripture says, by their willingness and Holy Spirit-empowered ability to love other people. It's what Christians do. Here's the question. Is your life marked by love? In the hard places, with the hard people, is your life marked by love? Now, let's be careful about that. That doesn't mean that you feel a certain way towards people all the time. It's not how you feel. It's not about uh, your feeling. It's about your doing. What you do. Loving is living on purpose in a way that promotes the welfare of the other person and points them to Jesus Christ. That's what loving is. So that can take on a lot of different forms. It's not always the Barney type of love. I love you, you love me. We're a happy family. Sometimes it's rebuking and sometimes it's getting with your brother or your sister in Christ and warning them. But you're doing all that you do in love, just as Christ does and has done for us. That is the call to love. Look, we're living in a difficult time politically and with racial strife and all that's going on in our country right now. a lot of folks, I've heard this and, and I believe it, say that uh, President Obama is probably the president who was treated the worst, most disrespected, continually and viciously and personally attacked. Not, not, I'm not talking about his policies. I'm talking about attacking his person viciously. And much of that happened from so-called evangelical Christians. Brothers and sisters, that should not be. It shouldn't be. We're we're told to, uh, to, to submit to those in authority over us. We're told to respect them. But now we're living in a different situation in a different reality. And it's not time to take vengeance and do what was done to President Obama with the next president. It's not time to do that. We can oppose policies and we can oppose procedures and we can oppose priorities of a leader, but we don't have the right to violate the Imago Dei in that person. We don't have a a right to the kind of vicious personal attack, even if we've been on the other side of that ourselves. Christians are marked by an ability and willingness to love others, even when it's difficult. Let's look at the last piece, last point here. Not only does God's love reveal who he is, and your love reveals who you are, but your love makes God's love complete. It's interesting, and you might think I'm a heretic for a minute. I hope I can work that out with you. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. That word is going to be used two more times. Perfected. Look at verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because... As he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. That word perfect is used three times in the verses that we just looked at. The Greek word there is teleos. It is a word that means to overcome or supplant a state of imperfection with a state that is now perfect. It means to bring something to its God-ordained end or completion. The word means to bring something from where it was not in a state of what God intended it for completely to a place, which is what God has created it for in the first place. He says there's a perfecting of love. By this is love, he says, perfected with us. It's interesting. Earlier in these verses, he talked about God's love among us. And then he talks about God's love in us. But now, he says, this love is perfected not just in us, not just among us, but it's perfected with us. In other words, we are partners with God in bringing his love to the world in a tangible way that makes a difference for the kingdom of God. Let me put it this way, God's love alone without the involvement of believers becoming vessels for the expression of it is an imperfect and incomplete love. Think about that. Now now we can think about uh, the gospel. The gospel is finished. Jesus says on the cross, Tetelestai, using this same word, it is finished. But later we read in Romans... How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? The gospel is a completed, finished fact, but it needs a preacher to carry the word forward. God's love has been demonstrated finally and completely in Christ, but he needs you and I to live that out in a lost and dying world, to show it to people all around us, to reach people with the love of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17 here. I love this verse. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. In other words, if we're living in this love of God, not only taking it in, but allowing God to love through us, he says, then you have confidence. You have assurance. You're not not afraid of judgment anymore. But then this incredible phrase at the end of that verse, he says, because as he is, so also are we in the world. As Jesus is, so also are we in the world. What do you mean, I'm like Jesus in the world? Jesus is the Savior. Am I a little Savior? I don't think so. Recap, Jesus is Lord. Are you a little Lord? I hope not. I love you, brother, but I hope not. Right? Uh, Jesus was able to go into a town and clean it out in terms of every sick person coming to Jesus. He was able to heal uh, and to revive those who were dead. Can I go over, can you go over to Temple Hospital right now and clean it out in 15 minutes? We can't do that. What does it mean that as he is, so also are we in the world? What does that mean? Does it mean that you can go and turn water into wine? I'm very glad for many of us that it does not mean that. You don't need that power. You don't. You don't. My daughter Leah, when she was, she was uh, uh, beginning to really grow in Christ as a teenager and she was excited about the things of God. She was in Houston, Texas. We were down there with her and um, she had a close friend of hers and she she tells the story. They were, Uh, talking about uh, the things of God and uh, the promises of God, and God promises that if you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. And they're like, wow, I want to be a a Christian that just has faith in God. And they're talking about this and they're walking along. They're in this uh, beautiful development and there's a pond in the development. They say, man, if we ask God anything, In Jesus name he'll do it for us. Do you believe that? I believe that sister. And so they look at this pond Well if we ask him we can walk to the other side of the pond We can walk right on the water of the pond. I believe it in Jesus name. Do you believe it? I believe it. Let's do it So they put out foot number one and as long as the weight was on the back foot they were they were fine but as soon as they moved forward They sunk in the water. They got wet. Now, that's not the funniest thing about the story. To me, the funniest thing is they continued to walk, (laughs) believing that the next step might make a difference. Thank God it was a shallow pond. Doesn't mean that you can walk on water. What does it mean? It's actually extremely clear in these verses what it means. As he is, so also are we in the world. He's talking about manifesting God's love. Just as Jesus comes and manifests his love, he says, Christian, man or woman of God, child of God, so also in your life you manifest God's love. Your presence, you, the, what you bring to uh, the, the situation and what you bring to the relationship is you bring the love of God. Yes. This is what Christians are called to bring. Me and you, and it's hard. It can be very difficult, but God allows us to, to live and to love in this way. He goes on to say in verse 18, He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. In verse 17, he said, we can have confidence in the day of judgment. Now he says, perfect love casts out all fear. I used to think that that simply meant when I really understand how much God loves me. I just understand that in my head, then I don't have any fear. That's not all that it means. That's the beginning. I understand the love that God has for me, but the perfect love we saw in verse 17 is the love that works with us and through us. And so as we live out the love of God in our lives, he says, it casts out all fear. I don't have to fear anymore because God's love is not only in my head and my heart, it's in my hands, it's in my feet, it's in my mouth. I'm loving people with the love Of Christ it's what God calls us to let me just say this as I think about so often when I fail to love well why is it that I fail to love well for me most of the time it comes back to this I'm protecting myself in some way I'm protecting myself whether that's physical or more often emotional whether it's safeguarding uh, uh, my image or the desired image that I want to project of myself, my Facebook reality, which ain't reality. I want people to think of me a certain way, and so uh, I, I, I won't love because if I, make, if I dare to actually love and expose myself, the real me will actually be seen, and I don't want to, I, won't, I don't want that to happen. See? But perfect love casts out all fear. I don't have to live in fear anymore. I don't have to try to project some image of a me that's not really me. I can be the, 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 the man who loves God and yet has faults and issues and people who are close to me see them well. But I also invite people to see that in me because I'm not trying to be a savior. I'm trying to point to one. Jesus, who is the Christ, the Son of God. Let me finish with this. Let me give you some practical things to take away. How is it that we can grow in our ability to effectively love others and honor Jesus? Number one, first of all, set aside a daily time a personal confession of your sin and reflecting upon God's extravagant grace at work in your life. Confession is something I know. I grew up in the Catholic Church, and when I got out of the Catholic Church, I'm like, oh, I'm glad I don't have to confess anymore. (laughs) We need to confess our sins to God. And I would encourage you to not just do that once a week or once a month or once a year, but to do it on a consistent basis. Confess your sins to God on a daily basis. I'm gonna encourage you to do these three things this, this week. Just every, night, every day, do these things. So the first one is confessing uh, your, your sin to God, and when you do that, reflect on the extravagance of His grace and love in your life. When you see how often and how much you fail Him, and yet His love never stops. It doesn't blink, that changes how you live number 2 get very real and honest with God and with yourself about those people in your life and or in the public sphere whom you find it exceedingly difficult to love now when i say that for some of you lots of names and faces start <laughs> coming before you and th- and that's all right it's true of all of us write them down Who is it that I really find hard to love? Like, I have a love aversion to this person. I don't want, they, the way they do me, the way they they set me off, the way, and, and they do it on purpose, too. The way they do that, I don't want to love this person. God says you don't have the right to make that decision. Write down those names. And don't just write them down, but commit to pray for them and also pray that God will help you act in a way towards them that, ref- that reflects his love for them. You, you may not change how you feel when you see them the next time, but, but you're saying, God, help me to reflect your love in every, every encounter I have with this person. Help me to reflect your love. And then the last thing, number three, is to take a few moments in the evening to consider how you have loved others today. Just just give yourself a little daily report card. How have I done in this interaction, in that interaction? Look, when you see that, you know, I really wanted to go off here, or I wanted to to make a point in a a way that I knew would be bad, but God, you kept me from that. It's time to give praise and glory and honor to God, because you didn't have it in yourself to do that. God helped you to do that. So you give him praise for that, but you'll probably do more than just give praise when you do that report card because you're probably not going to get straight A's every day. And when you don't get an A and when you get an F, not a B, not a C, but an F, when, when, when you've messed up, you come back and you go before God with that. And number one, you ask for his forgiveness. And then you repent of that sin, which means that you decide to turn the other way away from it, which may mean going back to that person the next day. Uh, And it certainly means making up your mind not to go that way again. Give yourself that daily report card, how it is that you're called to love God. Listen, as I close, real love isn't easy. It is very hard. When you see the cross of Christ, you should know that. And never have to question whether love is hard. It is. It was hard for Jesus. It's going to be hard for you and me. But on that cross, as Jesus was being mocked and ridiculed by everyone around him, even as his blood poured out that was being used to save you and me from the wrath of the Father, the wrath that we should have endured, In the midst of all of this, Jesus gathers up his breath from his failing and burning lungs just enough to say these words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. Brothers and sisters, if you know Jesus today in the pardon of your sins, then you are a recipient of his prodigal lavish, extravagant love. Now it's your turn. Complete this love by living it out radically in this world by the power of His Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for a love that is more than we could ever imagine or hope for. The love that came to us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. or many people who are in this room today can testify and say, my life has been changed forever, transformed by this powerful love. And yet, Lord, as we look in the mirror of your word, we can probably all see places where that love is not being lived through us towards others in the way that it should be. Lord, call us, call your people to repentance. Wherever it is that we fall short in loving others with the love of Christ, do your work, O God, in us that you might perfect your love through us people would see Jesus clearly. Lord, have your way in all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. our men can come forward at this time we're going to have we're going to celebrate communion the Lord's Supper where we take the bread that represents his body and the cup that represents his blood that he that was poured out for our sins and so if you're a believer in Christ if you've received that forgiveness and put your trust in him then I encourage you to take this bread and to take this cup If you don't know Christ in the pardon of your sins, I encourage you to let it go. It's just a symbol. It's a piece of bread and some grape juice. But don't leave this place without talking to someone about your soul. Don't leave this place the same way you came in. Ask Christ to save you and to work in your heart. Amen.